This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the digital industry. Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETS sponsor. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Joining me in the studio today is Lee, Lee Chen Ren, the director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. Uh, thanks for joining me in the studio here, Lee Chen. Hi, thank you. Please note, I'm a registered representative, registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion today is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We have a very timely show today. We're going to have Mark Chandler. Uh, we've had Mark when he was formerly uh, at, at BBH on a currency role. He's got a new firm he's part 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 of now. Looking forward to reconnecting with Mark on his views. Um, we've got a China expert on the second half of the show. Um, beyond Lee Chen, we've got somebody from Matthews Asia, Andy Rothman, who's a, a great commentator on what's happening in Asia and, and China particularly. Um, but Professor, uh, maybe to start with you, a lot of news this week. Mm-hmm. Um, what's what's your, your sense of uh, what's going on? Well, the big news, of course, was, uh, you know, took place on Wednesday uh, with uh, the speech by Jay Powell. Uh, we had we had said that that might happen. I, I said that I thought the Fed uh, was uh, very likely uh, to slow down and give such an indication in a talk uh, um, before the December 19th actual meeting. And, uh, you know, those the, those two critical words, we are just below uh, the neutral rate, was very comforting to the market. Because remember, uh, his previous statement in October was we were far from the neutral rate. And um, uh, the dot plot of the FOMC members actually showed that they were going to tighten above the neutral rate all the way into uh, basically the high threes next year and the year after to slow down the economy. Um, I think uh, he was chastened by the market. The market is, has been saying over the last three or four weeks that uh, don't, don't raise it too fast. I mean, the, the, you know, the 10-year hasn't continued to rise, so this flattens the curve if you continue it. And obviously we've been getting some much slower, uh, in my opinion, slower uh, economic news for this quarter. Um, of course, I, on today, everyone's agenda is, um, uh, is turned to the G20 meeting uh, and uh, President Trump and uh, President Xi from China, whether they're going to announce any deal or not, and I know you have you know you have people there that are also going to uh, going to talk about that issue. Yeah. Um, my 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 feeling is that there won't be any definitive deal. The best that we could hope for is that they both make statements. We are making progress towards a deal. 
I, I don't think really Trump likes these multilateral conferences. He's a one-on-one person and um, uh, has tended to negotiate uh, that way. Um, uh, nonetheless, I, I would say that given the economic and political situation, uh, as I say, now he can't use he can't use Jay Powell as a whipping boy anymore for blaming the stock market going down. It's all on him now to come to an agreement on, on China. He does not want to have a, a trade war blow up on him and send the uh, stock market down another ten to fifteen percent. You know, I think one, as, as we got towards the end of this week, you know, you've got some other Trump news with the uh, the Cohen plea, and there's, you know, I'm reading a lot of political commentary that uh, Mueller's indictments are coming, and uh, and that's going to be one additional source. But you haven't really seen the markets react all that much to that. Any no, any no. sense on what's... Uh, you know, the the truth of the matter is, and uh, you know, I remember it was, you know, two or three months after Trump was elected. Um, and uh, again, something broke that was very bad. Everyone thought, oh, my God, he's going to be indicted and leave office and all the rest. And I said, I, I kept on stressing. I said the market rides on the Republican agenda, which if he leaves, um, Michael uh, uh, Pence will, you know, be um, uh, our vice president, will step in and actually more faithfully execute the Republican agenda than Donald Trump. So uh, uh, now we could talk about prospects of what that means for 2020, but, um, uh, you know, it doesn't really change the picture of, um, of, of the next two years. Um, now, uh, I was on CNBC earlier this morning, and I say there is concern two years from now because given that Democrats did fairly well, um, uh, if they do this well, just and no better, but just this well, they would have the presidency in 2020, and uh, they would make the Senate very competitive on a 50-50, um, and the House would still stay Democratic. So there's a there's a possibility if you change all three branches of, of, of Congress that you will have a reversal of some of the gains uh, that uh, the Republicans and Trump have worked for over the last two years, and. And that's a long-run source of concern. Of course, uh, you know, in the short run, we need the the resolution of the uh, Chinese-American uh, trade dispute. Yeah. Um, if, if you could stick with us a few more minutes, I know Mark is a, a one of the currency and, and Fed watchers as mm-hmm. well. Um, maybe just bring Mark in for some, some conversation. Um, so, Mark, you've got a new role, Chief Market Strategist at Bannock Burn Global Forex. Um, we've talked with you at BBH, Brown Brothers Harriman. Um, you're still writing uh, the blog, Mark to Market. Welcome back to our, our show. Thank you. It's, it's an honor. You know, I, yeah, I joined uh, Bannock Burn uh, Global. They're a, a small uh, niche boutique that really helps small and medium-sized businesses navigate the FX market. Um, so, so what's your, you heard Professor Siegel sort of lead off with some commentary. Any any reactions, anything you're thinking about from the Fed? I know you, you write a lot about what's, what's happening with the Fed. Uh, yeah, I sort of would take a, I mean, I, I sort of would put it this way. I, I, here we are at the end of this uh, big week in which people say that the Fed's views have changed. But, you know, our two-year note yield, which is a good barometer of, um, say, medium-term Fed views, essentially unchanged on the week. The dollar is stronger. And I, I, I sort of think that most of what we learned from Powell and the, uh, in his speech in New York, I think, we really, I think many people in the market already knew it. And it's deduced from two facts. One is that starting next year, 
the Federal Reserve is going to have a press conference after every meeting. Up until now, throughout this cycle, the Fed's only raised rates at meetings in which there's a press conference. So giving, uh, having more press conferences means more opportunities to raise interest rates, which means more flexibility. Secondly, the Fed's dot plots for quite some time have shown expectations for three rate hikes next year. Assuming they raise rates in December, there'll be four rate hikes this year. If they only hike rates three times next year, that already implies a pause. The Federal Reserve has already told us they're going to pause sometime next year, and the game has been when is the pause going to be. And thirdly, I'd say about the Powell's comment about where Fed funds are relative to uh, this neutral rate. I, for me, the, the whole problem is when we think of it as a rate. What the Federal Reserve does is provide us a range, and the range of estimates is 25 to 3.5%. With Fed funds are now one hike away from being at the lower end. That is when the upper end of the Fed funds target range will be at the lower end of where the Fed says is the neutral range. Now, the, the Fed doesn't say it's in a range, really. What the Fed does is that's a, that's a collection of individual forecasts. Most of the Fed's forecasts are for the neutral rate to be closer to 3%. Uh, and one last point would be that Brainerd, Governor Brainerd, speaking next week, and we should pay attention to her because she draws a distinction between the short-run equilibrium rate and the longer-term equilibrium rate. And I think this might catch on at the Federal Reserve as well. So uh, uh, yeah, let me let me follow up on uh, some of those comments, Mark. Uh, <laughs> yes, I agree with you. Actually, um, the, I, I, I look closely at the uh, uh, January 2000 and 20 Fed funds futures, because that would reflect the year end of 2019. And uh, at the beginning of November, that was at 295. And uh, on, uh, it had fallen all the way to 275 on the day before Powell's speech. Now it's down to 271. So most, uh, you're right, most of the reaction as there was more turmoil in the equities market and there were other signs of, um, again, the strength of the dollar and other signs uh, that the 10-year very well behaved, I think the market came to the conclusion that the the Fed was going to slow down. Uh, he kind of confirmed it and, and also took himself out politically, I think, as a target now for Trump. Uh, it's more on Trump now how uh, the market is. Um, but we do, um, it, it did go from 295 and now at 271. So that's that is a 25 basis point drop. So in this period of time, uh, the uh, number of, you know, however you interpret the number of increases, it has gone down one uh, from uh, early November uh, until uh, what, we, uh, what we have now. Um, you're right. I mean, right now we have the Fed funds at 220. Um, uh, it looks very much like they, even though they may range the range to two and a quarter, two and a half, they're actually going to make a technical adjustment and probably give us in December a 240 actual uh, interest on reserves uh, where the fund rate actually did. So that's just a little bit below that two and a half percent range. You are right, two and a half to three and a half, or in real terms, uh, one half to one and a half, as uh, economists call our star, taking out that two percent. Um, inflation rate, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I uh, what also uh, I, I found when you're, I, I was a little troubled at um, 
the jobless claims number that we saw yesterday. Um, uh, and I know that is a volatile number, but it is broken out from a trend on the upside, and it is the most sensitive of the early uh, indicators, uh, real indicators, to uh, some sort of a, a slowdown. So, um, uh, and, and the fact is that most forecasters now are forecasting fourth quarter at two and a half, and that's a full percentage point down from uh, the three and a half that we had in the third quarter, and of course over four that we had in the second quarter. So, uh, and next year, now next year is a real wild card. Most people are in the mid twos. We'll have to see uh, again. Um, but um, we 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 do see a slowdown. I'm a little concerned about those that jobless uh, uh, claims um, number. If we get another high one this Thursday. I'm, I'm just wondering if we're beginning to really see um, uh, uh, some sort of significant slowdown or not. Not a recession by any means, but but uh, a slowing of the pace. Yeah, no, I agree with those. Uh, those jobless claims have been disturbing. You know, they really bottomed, it looks like, in September. And I think the four-week moving average, which you know we used just to smooth it out a little bit, is, I think is the highest since the summer. Mm-hmm. But I think that there could be some uh, one-off factors, say those fires uh, in California, uh, the Thanksgiving holiday. So, I, but I do think that we might have put in the cyclical low. I'm just not sure how much weaker we get before we get a little bit of a recovery there. But I, I agree, it's something that we, we need to watch. It's something I'm sure the Fed is watching. Yeah, oh, oh yeah, definitely, uh, uh, the Fed is watching. I, 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 I you know, it, it's uh, uh, Christmas season seems to have started out quite okay. Um, uh, Black Friday, etc. Uh, sales. Uh, we'll see how things go uh, later on. I, I also, I don't know, Mark, you have a, my, my prediction is uh, uh, Trump has to come to some sort of, he can't have a full-fledged war starting January 1st. Um, I mean, uh, it's, it's much more focused on him. Um, I don't know if you, if you feel he's going to stand firm on something like that, but I feel he's going to cave in like he did in Mexico and, and, and Canada. Um, and uh, maybe that will be his Christmas present on December 25th or you know, or New Year's around that time. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm worried that, I mean, for example, at the dinner tomorrow night, uh, uh, two of the uh, hawks from the administration, two of the Chinese hawks are there. I'm concerned that uh, we've begun a Cold War or we ha- are entered a Cold War with China that's going to end up dividing the world. And I say this. I don't want to be alarmist, but, you know, within the NAFTA, the NAFTA II agreement that's that signed today, there's a clause in it that says if you want special privilege, special access to the U.S. market, you cannot enter into a, a trade agreement with a non-market economy. Non-market economy is a code word for China. And so we're basically telling – it doesn't really affect Canada and Mexico so much, but what is important of it is that this is going to be the precedent – that as we negotiate uh, trade agreements with Europe and Japan, this is going to be the precedent that we're going to insist on. And I think China's trying to do the same thing. It tells countries, if you want us to help you, if you want our aid, you cannot recognize Taiwan, which, of course, the U.S. doesn't recognize Taiwan either. Uh, we recognize it as one, you know, as one China policy. But China is using its financial power to try to get political results. And I, I see the U.S. trying to do the same thing. And I can't – I really don't see – um, success coming from this weekend. But I do think that what will happen is that there will be no agreement in effect. 
and uh, they'll, they'll try to be optimistic, and then they'll kick the can down the road to the middle of December when one of President Xi's top economic advisors may come to the U.S. And I think that's when, I mean, so I think that'll be anticlimactic this weekend as far as the U.S.-China yeah, I do too. It's going to be, uh, there might be some nice words at dinner, but that's it. I agree with I, you there. I, I think I think the serious negotiations are, are forthcoming in December. I do think they're going to reach uh, an agreement. I mean, at at worst, I think they'll it'll be a standstill without not any uh, increase in tariffs. Maybe they'll continue the current one for another three months without jumping them up as, hey, we're getting close but not quite there. Let's not ramp it up. Let's sort of keep it right where it is. That's a possibility also at year end. But I I think, uh, you know, Trump might be in under pressure really to deliver something and take that uncertainty off the table because uh, it is really a, a, a big a big issue and a big uncertainty. Yeah, but I, I think that the uh, it's one issue that almost if, if there's one issue that unites this very separate, divided country, it's this idea. For me, I think there's one big war camp. So Trump, Trump leads the war camp, that wing of the war camp that wants to challenge China directly. And that includes you know, so many of the top people in the administration. And the Democrats, or other, the other party, even some Republicans, they're part of the war camp that says, no, rather than the U.S. doing it unilaterally, we should lead a coalition against it. I think that the Made in China 2025 is like the, like the antithesis of Make America Great Again. Both of yeah. them are ultimately import substitution strategies. P- Professor, I know you uh, you had a, a deadline around one fifteen that had to head it off. But so thanks for yeah, joining us. Yes, I do. I do have a thing that's very interesting. To do. I, you know, just as a final word, um, you know, we're at three point seven percent unemployment. Our, our labor market is pretty drum tight. Uh, you know, this idea about let's get jobs back, or where are the people coming from? to supply that. I mean, you know, if we had 7 8% unemployment, I'd say, yeah, let's get this back. I'm just wondering. <laughs> At this particular juncture, uh, you know, I mean, where where we're going to find find the people. Oh, we're going to, you know, stop the trade deficit with China and move 600 billion more production in the U.S. We don't have workers for that. So we're going to, you know, you're gonna, we're gonna, we're we're certainly gonna have to see it. But uh, it's been great talking with you, Mark, and um, and, and of course Jeremy. And I, I know we'll probably be chatting about these uh, topics again soon. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Thanks. Thanks, Professor. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Mark Chandler, who is the chief market strategist, Bannock Byrne, Global Forex. In the studio, I have Li Chen Ren of Wisdom Tree. Li Chen, you heard them talking about China, and I know we're going to have a a sort of a little bit more extended conversation second half of the show, but any reactions to what you heard the professor and Mark say just to, to start the show here? Well, I guess I might be the optimistic one. Um, Mark, I do have a question that, um, the consensus is that the trade war is bad for China, and I probably will ask the same question to the next guest as well. But is it really? So um, from some of my experience, after the trade war, um, China lowered customs tax for a, a range of products like cars, um, cancer drugs, which are actually very much welcomed in Chinese. Actually, if you go to Chinese social media, um, a lot of Chinese consumers was happy that the trade was started and then the taxes were lowered on those products. And also China wants to move to a, you know, 
a more higher scale manufacturing. So the trade war, you know, forced them to upgrade their industry. So I, I just want to get your points. Um, I'm, I mean, compared to what, what you guys mentioned, I'm definitely a little bit more optimistic. But do you really think that the trade war is very bad for both U.S. and China? Well, how I sort of think to myself, like, how has China, I think since 1980, that per capita income in China has grown by eight or nine fold. And that was partly made possible because China became integrated into a fairly open world trade system. And so if you, if you tell me that, this, uh, that because of maybe rigidities within China, it needed this external stimulus to get it over the hump, like to cut the tariffs or to open up the economy more to foreign businesses. I, I, I fully can accept that. It fits very much into like the, uh, the Western like developmental, like W.W. W. Rostow's uh, stages of economic development. Sometimes you need this exogenous force to, uh, to, to, to help modernize. But I, I'm not sure if, if this is good in the long run. I mean, of course, I think I fully agree that this is going to force China to, uh, value, to uh, move up the value-added chain. And it'll also, though, strengthen the right to the, the hawks in China that say the U.S. is undependable. And so to try to isolate or replace U.S. soy or U.S. markets or U.S. sources of supply to other countries. So I think this will spark a, a new, like, a division of labor, if you will. And so I can see how other countries in East Asia will benefit by supplanting the U.S., helping China, sort of moving more into the Chinese orbit. Mark, we've, we've talked a lot about uh, with you over the time, you know, your views on currencies, the dollar, uh, some of the major currencies, and, and certainly some of the implications. You know, the U.S. political situation isn't the only interesting political situation around. The euro has been caught in a lot of uh, European politics, Brexit, Italy. Uh, today, it's, it, it's, it's down a decent amount. What, what's your thoughts on just what's going on in the dollar generally, maybe with the other big political story being a lot of what's going on in Europe? Yeah, so I'm still in this uh, dollar bullish camp, and I base it really on the interest rate differentials. I think that even though, uh, as we've been talking about, the Federal Reserve uh, may slow down its rate hikes from four this year to two or maybe three next year, uh, but this is Europe is also experiencing a slowdown. The German economy contracted in Q3, as did Italy. And I think that this means that the next the possibility, so the ECB is going to finish their asset purchases uh, this month, uh, next month, December, and uh, but they're in no position to raise interest rates. So I think that the story of divergence and the policy mix in the U.S. of uh, somewhat the tighter monetary policy, somewhat looser fiscal policy, uh, extends the dollar's rally towards, I, I have it like penciled in for the middle of next year. And by that time, I think that uh, I do look for the Fed to pause. I look for the Fed to hike rates in Q1 and Q2, pausing in June or July. And uh uh, that pause, will, I think, send the dollar down. I think people sense that since the end of the cycle. Uh, but still maybe some time off before the uh, before Europe or Japan could raise interest rates. Now, when you talk about like the drivers of currencies, and I, you're, in your note today, you're talking about capital flows and some of the misperceptions on capital flows. You sort of had an interesting commentary on the story and narrative around some of the emerging markets, and, and Korea in particular, um, do, you want, do you want to sort of draw attention to what are the – so here you're talking about the U.S., the, the interest rates and Fed policy being one of the main drivers of currencies. And maybe you just talk about the capital flows element in, in Korea. Yeah, sure. So uh, Korea, uh, as expected, raised interest rates earlier today. And many people have this idea that the Korean won is down and Korean stock market down is part of the whole emerging market story. 
that capital is leaving. And, uh, and this is partly why the central bank raised interest rates. The economy is growing uh, fairly slowly. I think it was about 2% uh, in Q2, uh, which is the sort of low end of where it's been in, uh, basically in a decade. Inflation is right on target. But so why did the central bank hike interest rates? They said, well, their interest rates were at 1.5%. And the argument is if they didn't hike interest rates, capital would leave the country because the U.S. interest rate differential with the Fed raising interest rates, that money would be sucked into the U.S. And I was just trying to suggest that maybe it's just the capital flow story is more complicated. It's the equity flows that's so sexy. We want to talk about how the, how the Korean stock market's doing or individual companies like Samsung. But in truth, this, what's happening, I think, in the world is that when people, excluding Americans, when people overseas, foreign countries, take, buy foreign assets, portfolio investment, it's highly biased towards fixed income. Perhaps because Americans have the treasury market as a domestic bond market, Americans tend to take bigger risks and invest more in equities overseas than, than foreigners typically do as part of the portfolio goes. So what I've just pointed out was essentially that even though there was money leaving the Korean stock market, a lot more money was coming into the Korean bond market. And the difference, I think, when I think about currencies is that typically – uh, and, you know, you know we, we talked about this before, too, is that typically a lot of equity investors don't hedge the, the currency risk. Even though for, you know, basket of international stocks, the currency could be a third of the total return. But fixed income, uh, because of the, maybe because the currency is such a bigger part of the total return, a basket of international stocks, the, excuse me, a basket of international bonds, the currency could be two-thirds of the return. So typically, those flows are hedged in a way that equity flows aren't hedged as much. Yeah, despite my best efforts, I, I keep working on that that, that issue very extensively. Um, now, Lee Chen has an experience at Vanguard doing that on, on the bond side and uh, uh, actually running some strategies that did that on, on equities as well. Um, now, the interesting thing on Korea is usually you know there's a, there's a really high cost to hedge a lot of the emerging market strategies um, because of just higher interest rate differentials. The interesting about Korea, which is one of the largest weights in the traditional MSCI Emerging Markets Index, is what you what you just pointed out the short term rates on Korea are is are actually lower right than the U S and you're at, this this forward rate differential um, you know you're not actually costing as much as some of these other countries that typically have higher rates exactly exactly I think that, that's what I mean when you think about uh, and, and working with these small and medium sized businesses more as opposed to the large asset managers you can really appreciate the uh, looking at the forward rate looking at what the volatility, what the option cost is, different strategies on how to hedge the currency exposure. And it's, it's just interesting where, like, forecasts are, where the uh, break-evens are, it's a, uh, and how the market's positioned through, like, looking at, like, put-call ratios or, or uh, risk reversals just to get a better sense of the bias in the market. And using that, uh, that sort of price discovery to manage risk, it could be used, I could see how it could be used as a speculative vehicle, but just to manage risk, it's can be important as well. How would you say, I mean, it's interesting that that point of view talking with business companies, a lot of people, it is one of those sort of how how exposed are companies to the, the move in the dollar? And I often say, you know, now in the U.S., almost, well, it, it, the question is how much of the profits of the U.S. come from outside the U.S. and are exposed to currency fluctuations? Um, there, it's not easy data to get profit contribution outside. I mean, the revenue contribution is, I think, something like two-thirds revenue from the U.S., one-third revenue abroad. But because of the profitability of foreign 
profits. I think the actual would be something like 50% of S&P profits come abroad. Um, h- how do you think companies hedge their foreign currency exposure on a profit basis? Any general commentary on that? Uh, yeah, I don't know about a profit basis. I see them. some of them doing it, something like this. They say uh, they talk to their branches and maybe they get they think they get, uh, say, uh, uh, 100 uh, RI or say a thousand RI in uh, in local sales, they might hedge some fraction of that, eighty percent of it, fifty percent of it, hedging their hedging their the income rather than hedging the uh, so the brick and mortar. If a U.S. company buys a Canadian company, they typically might not uh, hedge uh, the uh, the cost of the investment itself. That's just the cost of doing business, but hedging their flows related to that. The other thing, too, to think and keep in mind is that sometimes, I know we all like the markets and everything, but sometimes it's good to avoid them. And so one way a company can avoid going to the markets and thinking about the hedging, for, especially for these uh, long-term uh, projects, is, is rather than having to go out and buy the Canadian dollar, take the Canadian dollar exposure, for example, borrow the Canadian dollar onshore within Canada, borrow the Canadian dollars, and thereby offsetting an asset incoming, income flows, with a liability, and thereby neutralizing the currency internally, like netting it, yeah. which is like what a lot of uh, asset managers will do. They'll figure out what the cur- different currency transactions are and see how much they can do internally. Same thing with what companies are doing with trying to take uh, offset an asset with a liability. Yep. So we talked talk about a big, broad topic of topics here. Uh, any sort of, as, as, we, as we had to close to the sec- first half of the show, any sort of final points you want to make around global markets, what you're doing at, uh, on helping companies here? Yeah, no, I just think that this, we're going through a very exciting time in the markets. I mean, I, I think that uh, you know what's going to happen in the next several weeks. Uh, we'll have the Fed meeting, the new forecast. We'll have the ECB meeting and some forward guidance there. We've got the Brexit vote coming up. The debate begins next week. Uh, we've got the OPEC meeting coming up. These, these are going to be challenging times, and especially at the end of this year, where you have, partly due to Fed tightening, partly due to regulation changes, uh, you've got this money uh, shifting from offshore, these dollars as companies repatriate, taking dollars out of, say, European and Asian banks and bringing those dollars to the U.S. So you have this spike in the, you know, this real uh, spike in the cost of securing dollar funding. And so it's going to be, uh, as we enter the, uh, you know, this last month of the year, I think it's going to be uh, uh, a challenging period with all these events. Well, Mark, it's been great to reconnect. Thank you. Congrats on your position at Bannockburn Global Forex. You're listening to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We have Lee Chen Ren in the studio. We talked with Andy Rothman of Matthews Asia right after the break. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, joined in our studio here by Li Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. She comes from China, so has a lot to add to our conversation in our second half of our show. Uh, we're going to have Andy Rothman, who's the, an investment strategist at Matthews Asia. Matthews is really one of the premier firms for focusing on Asia, China in particular. Uh, Andy lived and worked in China for more than 20 years, looking at the economic politics before joining Matthews uh, in 2014. Um, Andy, welcome back to our program. Thanks for joining us. Morning. Good to be back with you. Um, so a lot going on this weekend. We've got dinner this weekend with Trump and G, um, and we've got uh, we had a little bit of a focus on that in the first part of the show, but we're going to come back to it here. Um, that is a lot what the market's focused on. So maybe at a, at a very high level, you can tell us, um, you know, China's stocks have been really under pressure. Uh, is Matthews look at this as an opportunity? Do you think uh, we're going to what, just what's, how do you frame what's going on in, in the Chinese economy and, and markets? Okay. 
Well, let's start by getting to uh, to dinner tomorrow night uh, down in Buenos Aires. Uh, I think there is uh, a very good possibility that we won't see a resolution to all the issues in U.S.-China relations, but a truce. Uh, it does seem clear to me that President Trump uh, wants to reach a deal. I mean, he's primarily a deal maker, and I think he's also come to realize that the prospect of a full-blown trade war with America's largest trading partner is weighing heavily on U.S. equity markets, on corporate performance, and on the economy in general. Uh, his advisors have told him that if he goes to a full-blown trade war with China, that could take 50 to 100 basis points off of U.S. GDP growth next year. And I think all of these are reasons why he wants to try to achieve a deal, and I think the Chinese are hoping to do a deal as well. So I think odds are, are pretty good for that. And if that happens, as I said, it, it won't eliminate or resolve all of the problems, but at least change the, the tone and the direction of the bilateral conversation. And I think that should lift some of the concerns and pessimism that has been weighing on Chinese investors' minds. And that uh, leaves me to believe that we've got an opportunity right now, given that earnings growth is pretty good, the macro conditions are pretty good, and valuations have come down significantly. And is there, you know, the when you when you think about you know the Chinese opportunity, there's such a bifurcation of valuations. You have big state banks at at five times earnings. You've got the big tech companies at the opposite, and you've been you know just sort of like the U.S. tech stocks have really powered the markets higher over the last you know five ten years. You've seen China tech dramatically perform. Is there? Do you think it's just a generic opportunity across China, or is there um, something in particular that you you think is stands out there? I think that uh, the Chinese market is too complicated to call it a generic opportunity. Yeah. So while my view is that China is the world's best consumer story, uh, you've got phenomenal growth in income, which is driving phenomenal growth in retail sales, while household savings rates are still high. So it's a fantastic consumer story. But I, I think it comes down to picking the right stocks, of course. And this is why at Matthews we take it an active approach. And even in areas like tech, for example, where there are some well-known names in, in Chinese tech that are expensive, uh, we could also find some less well-known names that are not as expensive. Hmm. So the, um, the, the the trade issues you think are are basically, how do you, when you say they're going to come to a truce, um, is that do you think these tariffs and in some ways end up still going through in a fashion or do you just is it hard to really forecast where where you think that that trade issue goes well difficult to say exactly what's going to happen but my expectation is that at dinner tomorrow night down in buenos aires at the g20 trump and she will change the tone of the direction of, yeah. of their conversation so instead of talking about a trade war and a Cold War relationship with our largest trading partner. The conversation will be redirected next year to how do we solve these problems? How do we get better market access for U.S. firms in China? How do we better protect their intellectual property rights? And that, I think, is really important. You know, even though those issues will be difficult to work on, at least they'll be aiming to solve problems rather than aiming for conflict. And I think that will have a significant impact on sentiment in, among Chinese investors. Very good. Li Chen, you coming from China, um, and, and think, I, you know, I know your, your tone in the first part of the program was there are people, a lot of pessimism out there, and you are more optimistic. So Andy seems to more line up with, with what you were saying there before. Any any commentary there? Yes. So Andy, I think uh, um, 
I don't know whether you heard the first um, part, but my um, my take was that if you look look at Chinese social media, a lot of Chinese actually welcomed the trade war because some of the concessions that uh, the Chinese government made has already benefited the Chinese consumers. Um, and, you know, a lot of those products like cancer drugs also benefited the U.S. firms as well. So I, I liked, you know, your retake on whether um, this trade dispute, I, I hate to use the word, uh, the, the word war, I don't think it's a trade war per se, um, whether the trade disputes are indeed is so uh, detrimental to both the Chinese and the U- U.S. economy. My follow-up question was really, um, in China, if you talk to some of my Chinese friends, they are mentioning that through this trade war, China has two ways. One is to get it more inward, which is, you know, people agree it's bad for, for China and for the world. But on the other hand, it could be leading the government toward more integrated with the world economy and giving the private firms in China um, uh, more more leeway in the sense that in China there's worries that the state sector is re- reusing their muscles and through this trade war the private firms can show that look you know we add value um, and they could actually get um, a little bit of breathing room so I want to get your take on that too. Ah, lots of good questions thanks. Um, well I guess I would start by saying that at this point I think we're, we're in a tariff dispute rather than a full-blown trade war. Uh, a trade war, uh, I don't think we reach a trade war stage until a lot more tariffs go into a place or the in, in place and the U.S. takes a lot tougher action. So the pressure right now is, is modest. It's more about people worrying about what might come next. But my view is that while pressure from the outside world on the Chinese government to continue moving ahead with its reforms and, and market-based reforms is a good thing, a trade war is not going to be good for anybody uh, because there will be significant damage. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, Trump's advisors have told him that a full-blown trade war could take 50 to 100 basis points off of U.S. GDP growth next year. But I was in Beijing a few weeks ago, and Chinese government economists there told me that they have a similar forecast that a full-blown trade war could take as much as one percentage point off of China's GDP growth next year. And that's not going to accelerate the reform process. I think the kinds of negotiations, engagement that we've seen over the last few decades does make that happen. If you look at the changes in the Chinese economy since they joined the WTO, they've been profound. And it's not just because of outside pressure. It's because China wanted to do that and wanted to join the international framework that the U.S. really created after World War II to put those structures in place in China and, 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 and make that progress. So we've gone from when I first started working in China 30 years ago, there were no private companies at all. You, you're, you know that. Whereas today, 85% of urban employment is with small entrepreneurial private companies. And while there is a lot of concern that Xi Jinping might be moving backwards on that commitment to an entrepreneurial economy, I think his rhetoric really confused a lot of people. Earlier in the year, he was talking a lot about helping SOEs over private company state-owned firms. But if you look at the data... Um, private sector is still growing, and, and, and I think they're, they're thriving. In fact, if we look at investment by privately owned companies, uh, it's been up 7 to 8% year over year in each of the last eight months, stronger than, than last year. So I'm still pretty optimistic about that. 
Now, I, from remembering some of our past conversations or some of your publishing, you talk about how, correct me if I'm wrong, that, uh, that people focus on China's exports over time, but that the better story, and you say, is China's leading consumer growth. Any sort of mind some of our listeners may not have heard, just the sort of broad, broad trends of exports versus consumer and how they are shifting to this more consumer-oriented economy? Yeah, that's a really good point, and I think that one of the mistakes some people in Washington have been making this year is thinking that they hold a lot of leverage over China by messing with the trade relationship, because they don't seem to understand that China is no longer an export-led economy. So if we go back 10 years, say, before the global financial crisis, net exports, that's uh, the value of a country's exports minus their imports, that was equal to about 9% of China's GDP back then. Now, it's only 2%. And this year is the seventh consecutive year in which the consumer and services or tertiary part of the Chinese economy has been bigger than the manufacturing and construction part. And that's where the growth's coming from, too. In the first three quarters of this year, consumption accounted for 78% of China's GDP growth, up from a 46% share uh, five years ago. So this is really about a domestic-driven economy, and that's why our investment focus is on Chinese companies selling goods and services to Chinese consumers. Hmm. Yeah, that narrative is not what you hear out of Washington. Hmm. It, it is interesting. So is there, in that broad consumer growth trend, um, is there a, a particular, is just the, the local companies selling to, to local Chinese consumers? Is that the, the main story behind that? That's the main story. Obviously, there are uh, a number of foreign companies that are doing well there. So, you know, GM, for example, sells more cars in China than it does in the United States, and it's about 25% of their global revenue. And there's a bunch of American companies, uh, ranging from Apple and Tesla to Nike and NVIDIA, that get maybe 15% of their global revenue. Uh, But if you're really looking to focus on the Chinese consumer story, which, again, I call the world's best consumer story, then we're primarily focused on finding uh, Chinese companies that that are doing that, because obviously that's their main focus. And there, uh, you know, there are some household names here, uh, but we're really focused on uh, smaller companies that have really built a good business and where we have confidence in the management. And do you have a a view on A shares versus you know the other companies around the world? Is it uh, do you, do you have any uh, constraints on the A share side? Do you think that um, you need to be investing in A shares to to get access to these these local consumer companies? Well, A shares represent the biggest part of the listed Chinese universe, so it's important, and that's why we've had access at Matthews to the A share market for a long time, and we're we're certainly increasing our exposure there. But overall, I would say that. You don't want to focus on just A shares or just Hong Kong comp- listed Chinese companies or ADRs. Uh, you really just want to focus on getting the best Chinese company that you can. Having said that, though, increasingly, especially in the consumer and services space, those are companies listed in the A share market. We're talking Andy with Andy Rothman, who's an investment strategist at Matthews Asia, about views on China with all the, the weekend uh, summit here with, with Trump and President Xi uh, in terms of what's going on in China. Uh, and so, Andy, I know one of the big risks, you talk about the risk factors, and certainly this trade issue is one that, that comes up. Uh, the, the overhanging longer-term story for China has been, is there this massive misinvestment, a lot of leverage in the system, the banks at risk. Is that a story that, that you're tracking and, and think is a, a risk factor for anything going on in China? Sure. Um, that's something that I've been paying a lot 
of attention to for many years. So uh, let's start maybe by talking about the debt problem in China. There's no question that there is a significant debt burden in China. But I think this will continue to contribute to what we've been seeing for a decade now, which is every year, uh, the year-over-year growth rates in all parts of the Chinese economy are decelerating just a little bit, but off of a very big base. I think the risks of a systemic crisis in China's financial system, though, are are very low. Uh, While debt-to-GDP is high, we have to think about where that debt came from, how it was created. It was really the result of the Chinese government's response to the global financial crisis 10 years ago. Back then, exports were a much bigger part of the Chinese economy. Global demand fell off a cliff. Exports collapsed. A lot of Chinese lost their jobs, and the Chinese government responded with basically the biggest Keynesian stimulus since Keynes. They brought forward a lot of public infrastructure projects. And the debt was created by the Chinese government telling Chinese government-controlled banks to lend money to Chinese government-controlled state-owned enterprises, companies, to build government-directed public infrastructure. So this is going to be expensive and complicated to clean up. But because there's no private participation here, there's no equivalent of a Bear Stearns or a Lehman Brothers, there's no mark-to-market pressure. So the Chinese government has the luxury that we didn't have of being able to control how and when the cleanup process proceeds, and it's it's underway now. Legion, any any insights there from things you've looked at? Um, I I I think I agree. I agree. Um, most of those dead work. Um, Really, by by these um, during the stimulus in the two thousand eight two thousand nine. So if China continues to grow, hopefully you know you can grow off the debt burden. Um, my question about Asia is that um, there's, of course, even in the U.S., the growth GDP growth and the stock market correlation usually have lags and um, uh, or leads uh, in correlations. Sometimes the economy grow, but the market could go down. So could you? Just comment since you have so much more experience in terms of uh, how China's economy sometimes you know integrates or disintegrates from the China. Yeah, you know I think that because the Chinese uh, equity market is pretty young, it's only been around a couple of decades or so. It's relatively immature. Also, Chinese investors are a lot less mature than investors here, and. You know, while 80% or so of Chinese equities are held by institutions, about 80% of the turnover comes from retail investors, and a lot of that's driven by momentum and rumor and short-term prospects. And so it's been pretty disconnected from the Chinese economy. Uh, It doesn't tell us what's happening or forecast what's happening in the Chinese economy. Uh, At the same time, I'm pretty optimistic because... The macro fundamentals, I think, are strong. We're, we're looking next year for uh, another year of good income growth, uh, another year of pretty healthy earnings growth, and, and valuations are low. So I think there's, there's two overhangs that have been weighing on sentiment in China. One of them is the uh, problems with the United States over trade that we talked about, and if there's a, a truce over dinner, Uh, tomorrow night that will help. And the other issue is something you alluded to earlier, which is um, worries about state companies in China versus private companies in China. And I think that uh, Xi Jinping made a big mistake by overemphasizing with his rhetoric uh, his concern about state-owned enterprises or SOEs earlier this year. And, you know, when I was in Beijing recently, I asked a lot of my government contacts there if they could explain to me why 
President Xi was so focused earlier in the year on state-owned enterprises, and none of them could really explain it. But I thought one of them had a really good response to my question. He said, look, I don't understand why Xi Jinping has been focused on SOEs earlier in the year, but he's changed that lately. And as you know, in the last couple of months, he's not only been talking up entrepreneurial private companies, but he's been pushing the financial system to get more credit to them. And so this person said, at least it shows he's not stubborn. He realized he went too far in the wrong direction. It's, it's interesting, and uh, I, I interrupted before Li Shan was ready to jump in. But you know, one of the companies that I don't tend to think of as as state run, um, just from an ownership perspective. But then I think the worry is, you know, is is there the state? You can never disconnect the state from China generally, which is the sort of these big tech companies that you talked about being expensive. Uh, and there's been some modest things, and there's some things happening with the CEO level. You have Jack Ma at Alibaba. You've got the JD situation. You've got a number of situations going on in, in the tech leadership. Um, any sense of the state involvement in big tech there? Well, I think when it comes to tech, especially if we're talking about access to the internet as opposed to hardware, um, the Chinese government has significant concerns about social stability and they play a big role in guiding what the state can do. But um, you were alluding to some changes in management. And so just for some of your listeners who might not be following this closely, uh, Jack Ma, the founder and, and head of uh, Alibaba, uh, announced that he was going to be stepping down from his day-to-day role. And there's a lot of speculation here that maybe he was forced into doing that by the Chinese government, but I, I don't buy that. I tend to uh, believe what Jack Ma has said, which is that he's moving on to other things. He's already established himself uh, clearly in the Chinese history books as the first and leading entrepreneur in China. He's made a boatload of money. And now he says he wants to basically become like Bill Gates and be the first leader in driving philanthropy in China. And given the way that he's been talking about small businesses and and, and Chinese society for years, I don't see any reason not to believe him. And I also don't see any reason for the Chinese government to want to push him out, because while he's He's done a great job of navigating uh, the government, of, of pushing the boundaries, pushing the envelope for what's possible, but never in a way that's been threatening to the Chinese government. So I, I take this at face value. Hey, Andy, so you mentioned that um, your Matthews Asia also pay attention to non-public companies. Can you give us some examples of non-public companies in China that you think you know worth um, paying attention to? And in terms of ordinary investors, how could they um, access to that if, if, if they're not public? Well, at Matthews, we only invest in publicly listed companies. Uh, and I've got a, a coll- over 40 colleagues on our investment team who are dedicated only to looking at listed companies in China and in the rest of Asia. So when I'm in China, I tend to focus on meeting with uh, private entrepreneurial companies that are unlisted just to get a sense of what's happening in that part of the economy and what we can look forward to later. Uh, But we're doing this in terms of understanding the fundamentals of the economy. So, for example, when I was in China a few weeks ago after Beijing, um, I went to uh, Quanzhou, a city that few people have heard of over here but has 6 million people a traditional trading port in Fujian, uh, kind of across from Taiwan, to talk to small manufacturers there about how they see the economy and how they see government policy. And I met with local tax officials. So one of the things that's leaving me optimistic about next year is that it's pretty clear that we're going to continue to see tax cuts, uh, both at the corporate level and for individuals. For example,
example, they've already announced rules that will effectively take 100 million Chinese workers off of the tax rolls for personal income tax next year, which is uh, likely to have a, a positive boost to consumer spending. So those are the kinds of reasons why we're, we're, we're following the unlisted universe as well. Um, that's interesting to, see, to hear because my dad complained about taxes a lot, and uh, we will see whether they actually indeed follow up on those uh, tax cuts. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they will. You know, there's been a, uh, a track record of reducing both corporate and personal income taxes over the years. That said, there's still a lot of companies that complain to me that the tax burden is too high. Uh, one issue that's been on, on the top of uh, mind for some of our investors has been there's been talk about improving the efficiency of collection of Social Security taxes in China. And some people have been concerned that that's going to put pressure on, on profits at companies. But uh, all the officials that I spoke to in China said they're going to do this in a very pragmatic way so that it doesn't result in a increase in the tax burden on those companies. Yeah, this is one of those questions that is, I, I've seen some people say, uh, on our team say, you know, you're going to get this dramatic tax cut. And then I've, I've heard some other people on the ground saying about that Social Security. And so it's unclear which one is going to win out if there's a true, quote unquote, tax cut or if sort of just flat. Well, these, there were, these are two kind of uh, different areas of the tax spectrum. So they are clearly cutting uh, taxes across things like value added um, and also corporate income taxes. But then there's a separate part of this, which is that the government wants to better fund its pension system for workers. Mm -hmm. And it's clear that very few companies in China are paying the legally required amount of contribution into Social Security funds. So there were some statements earlier in the year that they were going to crack down on this. But then the government also clarified that they weren't going to do it in an abrupt way. And the companies that I spoke to and the local tax officials were all in agreement that nobody there was telling me they were worried about a, a big hit to profits next year because of that. Very good. Andy, it's always great to reconnect with you. It's been a, in, a, in a time where everybody's focused on China. Great to get a, a real China expert. Thank you for coming on our show today. Thanks for having me back. Enjoyed it. Um, you've been listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 132. Thank you to Lee Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree, joining me here at the Warren Studio. Thanks again, Daniel Bruno, our, our sound engineer, our producer, Patty Hall. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.